turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Uh, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. I want to say thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Ethan, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's such an honor uh, to have you worship with us if you're new. Hope you get to connect with you after the service today. Um, today is a special day, as Anna said earlier, that today we are celebrating 100 baptisms in the Well Network. And that is just awesome because God is amazing and he is faithful to do an incredible work in our church family and in our family of churches known as the Well Network. And so we're going to be having that right after the service today. And so we're going to uh, celebrate that while we'll Shrimble afterwards to celebrate even more. And so we really couldn't ask for more. Uh, but God is good. Amen. He is so good. And man, what, what a joy it is to be watching him move in all of our folks here today. Starting today, we are going to be beginning a new sermon series that's going to go over the, this whole month. And it's going to be on prayer, and specifically looking through Luke chapter 11. Robbie Gowdy says that every great move of God begins by not moving. That every great move of God begins by not moving. Where in Christian history, when you look back to the greatest movements of the Lord, the greatest revivals, the greatest awakenings, the greatest moments where God came into a group of people at a certain time in a certain place and did an incredible work where people experienced God, people were saved, people were discipled, and ultimately disciples were sent out for the Great Commission. D.L. Moody says that all of this can be traced back to a kneeling figure. In other words, it goes back to someone praying. There's a story of an incredible revival that happened in 1857, known as the Fulton Street Revival. In 1857, one writer put it like this, there were 30,000 men idle in the streets of New York. Drunkenness was rampant. The nation was divided by slavery. And God was raising up a praying businessman named Jeremiah Lanfield. On September the 23rd, 1857, he began a noontime prayer meeting on Fulton Street in the financial district in Manhattan. So out of a city of one million people, out of everyone he invited, six people showed up to his prayer meeting half an hour late. The group decided that they would go ahead and continue meeting, and so the next week they met, and there was 14 that came that week. The next week they met again, and they had 23 that came that week. The next week, they met again, and they had 40 people that week. And then within weeks, there were not hundreds, but thousands of business leaders meeting daily in Manhattan to pray. God moved so powerfully through this prayer meeting that prayer began to spread, the gospel began to spread across the nation. And it is estimated that nearly one million people were converted to Christ out of the national population of 35 million people, including 10,000 weekly conversions in New York City every single week. 10,000 people. And all of this began from one man in 1857 who wanted to pray. No idea that his prayers were on the threshold, the precipice of a citywide and then a nationwide revival. See, my, my hope for the Well Church and what, what I want us to see coming out of this time over this month is that we will not be a church that just prays occasionally, but we will be a praying church. Let me, let me put it like this. I, I have a Labrador that I love, and 
Uh, I like to train and spend time with her prepping for duck hunting, even though I'm not that good. I like to pretend that I am. And so the, with this dog, though, I, I've learned something over the past two years with the energy that comes from her. There, there's a huge difference between a hunting dog or a gun dog and a house dog. In other words, there's a huge difference between having a hunting dog that can be a house dog and then a house dog that can sometimes hunt. And so as much as I wish my dog Ranger was, I wish she was a purebred, like true professional hunting dog. But the reality is she ain't. <laughs> and this is me being honest with you this morning. I'm not as cool as Christian and his dogs. But my dog, uh, you know, she is in my backyard chilling 340 days a year. And so my professional dogs are out in the field 80, 90, 100 days a year, hunting, training, doing what they were like bred for, living for. And so all I have in my house is a dog that truly is a house dog or a backyard dog that can just do a few tricks in the water when I need it to. See, the difference between a dog that can hunt and a true hunting dog is very similar to what we have with a person that can pray sometimes and someone that is a praying person. See, we can't just be church members that just pray occasionally, like a dog that can sometimes hunt. But we have to be a praying Christian, that it is who we are, and it is what we do. See, if we refuse to pray, and to allow that to be to not be the heartbeat of our church, we might as well be a dead church. We can't be a church that just prays every now and then, but we have to be a praying church where the default is prayer. Where Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, and watch this, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. And so what we're going to do with the next four weeks is examine Luke 11, where Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. And so this passage is famously known as the Lord's Prayer, but for this series, we actually call it the Disciples' Prayer, because in actuality, this is what you and I are to pray, not what the Lord specifically prays. We're going to talk about that next week, but you'll see what I mean by it. But this is what He desires for you and I to pray to the Father. And over the next four weeks, my hope and prayer for you is that you would be captivated by prayer. I know this is a spiritual discipline that none of us have graduated from, but this is one we can all grow in, not one that we need to settle in or become complacent on, but it is one that we can grow and thrive in. And in the result, to see our church grow in health and maturity. So you're going to see how to pray, why we pray, what to pray for. And along the way, we will pray for God, pray that God will begin a movement in our day, in our church, in our city, on this college campus, by us not moving. So let's look to Luke 11, and we will read the first two verses today, and we'll begin to unpack this text. So look at verse 1 in chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John has taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Let's pause and pray here, and then we'll unpack this text. Heavenly Father, you are so majestic. You are so holy and incredible. 
And so, God, today we come to you acknowledging this, worshiping you today, that you are the focal point of this service today. You are everything today. And so, God, as we recognize this, we know that your will for us is to grow in prayer, to grow in Christ-likeness. And God, I, I just ask that your spirit would cut to our hearts today, that these would be your words moving in our lives, and that we would be transformed deeper into the image of your son, Jesus. Father, we just ask that right now you do an incredible work through your spirit, and ultimately you would receive the glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And amen. So in this section right here in Luke chapter 11, Luke is opening up and Jesus is praying. And so you'll notice here, and it's simply that the fact that Jesus prays, and he prays often. This indicates something pretty important for you and I to catch, and is that Christ spent time in prayer communing with the Father. He did this often. It was important to him. Just in the Gospel of Luke, there are nine different sections according just like this passage right here where he is praying to the Father. He would retreat in isolation to go to him. He would pray over his disciples. He would pray to the Father on behalf of those that he met in ministry. His life was saturated with prayer. And I simply say this to, to suggest this, that if Christ himself would go to the Father constantly over and over again to pray to the Father, how much more so should you and I pray? How much more so should us, his creation, run to him to pray to the Father. See, what happens next is profound. And I, and I think this is actually one of the most important parts of Luke 11 in these opening verses. See, it's in this that as he completes his prayer, one of the disciples goes up to him and he says, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. Just as John taught his disciples. He wanted to know how Jesus prayed. So let's think about that. If we want to learn how to pray, if we want to see how we need to do this, the best way is to go to the Son of God himself, right? And to see how he prays. More often than not, we don't know how to pray. Or maybe we've never been taught, or maybe we've never wrestled with this passage. Do we repeat a set of words? Do we like, try to say it perfectly word for word? Do we need to remain silent? Do we go short? Do we go long? What do we pray for? These are all great questions because there are many ways to pray. And without reading this passage, we would struggle with a place to begin. But what stands out the most to me, though, about this opening verse is this, is that this disciple had a desire to pray. Yeah, a desire. He wanted to learn. He wanted to grow. Do you carry the same desire that this disciple had? The Lord, I want to grow in prayer. I want to grow in communion with you. I want to learn your ways. How often do we go by in this life with no desire, no yearning to grow in the ways of Jesus? See, this whole process begins with a genuine desire, a hunger, an eagerness to grow. I pray for this moment that you and I truly as a church would come together with a, an incredible desire to pray to God. That we would continually lay down our lives, calling out to him, asking that he would move in our lives. Psalm 42 puts it best. This hunger 
where David says in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Do you desire more of God? Do you desire deeper communion with him? Do you want to know his peace, his presence, his witness in your life? The answer, the pathway is through prayer. You must yearn for this before you begin this journey as the disciples did. So rooted in this humble, this hungry desire for prayer, Jesus begins to teach them. And so I want to give you two main ideas about prayer based on this verse regards, in regard to praise, the praise that we see in prayer and the purpose of prayer. But the two main ideas that we're going to see right now is one, that we are to pray to worship, number one. And then secondly, we are to pray for his will. We are to pray to worship, and then we are to pray for his will. So let's begin with that first one. We're to pray to worship. If you look at verse one, where he says, teach us how to pray right after, he says, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. And so in this, we see this foundation that part of our prayer, the beginning of prayer, is actually to worship God. See, prayers are expressed to the Father. We see who it's aimed at. When you look at who's the recipient of prayer, it is to God the Father. He said, when you are praying, you are praying specifically to him. And so if you think of fishing, um, you may be not as good like me. And when you are fishing, it feels like oftentimes, if you ever go with me, that you're just casting a random lure into a random spot on the river or in the lake, and you're just hoping that something will get it, right? And so if you have ever been there, you know, because obviously you can't see down in the water. I wish you could, but you can't. And while you are doing this, it's just impossible to see. So it feels like you're guessing. It's unknown. There's this kind of confusion that goes with like, maybe someone will bite it. Maybe something will bite it. Maybe something will take it. Maybe something will do something where I can feel something on the line. You're just kind of hoping that something will nibble at it. See, this is not how prayer is. We are not just thoughtlessly throwing our, our minds up in the air, hoping that someone catches it and hears it and responds to it. But we are praying to God, who is sovereign over all, who hears our prayers. There's no guessing. There's no unknowns. They are aimed to him. And we have assurance that he hears our prayers. See, they go to him where it says, Father, hallowed be your name. So we see that prayers are expressed to the Father, and it's in this when you can even, if you really thought about it, as I ask myself here, well, what, what about the other persons of the Trinity, right? Have you ever thought about that? Like, sometimes you may ask the question, well, I, well who do I pray to? Do I pray to the Father? Do I pray to the Son? Do I pray for the Spirit? Like, what, what do I do? I, I really appreciate what John Piper says about this, where he says, so the pattern you see almost uniformly in the New Testament is that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in our church family, what you usually see is that most, more often than not, we will pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. This is the mode of prayer. Not that you can't pray to Christ with the Spirit because we would do that, but generally in the New Testament, we see him praying to the Father. So we see prayers are expressed to the Father, but then watch this. Prayers not only expressed to the Father, but prayers are exalting of the Father. What is the chief aim here? 
it is to praise God. It is to worship Him. You'll notice after He says, Father, He says, Hallowed be your name. This word means to regard one's name as holy. It's a worshipful line of prayer, acknowledging who God is, what He is like, what He has done. It's seeing and and, uh, and proclaiming that he is set apart from the rest of the world, acknowledging how majestic, how wonderful he is. This is what happens in prayer. When me and Lexi were both in Florence, and this was actually before we were dating, we were actually friends for a long time. We were really good friends, and um, it was, uh, we, I mean, it was a couple of years. And so when it came time that I knew I need to jump out of the friend zone, and make way into dating, I knew that it would have to be kind of abrupt because I hear people talk about this. And I'm like, man, this is going to be kind of awkward. And <laughs> we were both single. I was like, I'm pretty confident God wants us to get married. But that's another thing. I got to at least get us to where we were dating. And so I remember it was, uh, I think it was a Sunday night. Uh, I, was, I decided in my head that I was going to go to Lex and I was going to let her know how I feel. Because I had a dear friend who was wiser than me say, look, man, if you don't have a clear sense of direction, you're going to get lost. you got to tell her how you feel. And so I remember we were sitting out there. I was really nervous and anxious. And I began to tell her. I just decided, I'm just going to tell Lex how I feel. And so I said, Lexi, so the reason I'm hanging out with you is because I think you're amazing. And I think you are beautiful. And I think you're all these different things. And I would love to date you. But... And in my head, I'm thinking, like, man, like, this is so smooth. Like, I'm being bold, you know. And the way Lexi responds, she looks at me, and she goes, thank you. (laughs) And I thought, that's not what I expected. Like, you could say something back. Like, you could reciprocate something. But she just kept saying, oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm like, this ain't going to happen. We're here forever. We are stuck here. And the reason I was saying those things is because, like, I'm trying to communicate to her, like, look, the way I think and feel about you is different than everyone else in the world, girl. Like, look, like, I feel so, like, deeply in love with you, and I need you to understand that. I want you to hear that from me. Now, not in a romantic way, but in an honoring way. This is exactly what's happening when we exalt the Father. We're seeing them as set apart, different than every other thing in the world. And we are acknowledging how holy and amazing he is. This is what we're doing when we hallow his name. We're exalting the Father. Psalm 8 is a perfect example of this, where David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. How majestic is the name of Christ? How majestic is the Father? David is placing him above all things, hallowing his name. See, folks, when we pray, we begin by worshiping him, by exalting his name. Does that make sense? You guys with me on that? We exalt his name. So now we see this prayer, and and in the disciples' prayer, there are other times in the New Testament that we actually see this passage of Scripture. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. They're similar. They're similar in nature. They're telling the same thing from three different people. And we actually see a different account of Jesus instructing disciples in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you look there in Matthew 5, you can place a bookmark, bookmark on it. I think it'll be up here. In Matthew 5, uh, verse 10, 9 and 10, he says, Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. And this is how he says it here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in Luke, when he's instructing in this account, he just says your kingdom come. In Matthew, he says your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so you have these additional lines, but principally the truths are the same. They just have some slight differences in their variations. And so what I want you to see from this is not only are we to pray to worship him, but number two, we are to pray for his will. Not only are we going to exalt his name, but we are going to pray for his will. See, you and I are not, watch this, we're not praying to alter the will of God, but we are praying to align with the will of God, right? We're not praying to change his mind. We're praying that he would conform and shape us into what he wants. And see, our hopes, our desires, what you aspire to in this life, they reflect the heart and hope and desire of God. See, we pray for his will. There are three components in understanding this. If you break up those three, that verse in, in Matthew 5, 10, and it's rooted in here where we see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Three things quickly that we see. We see one, his kingdom is being advanced through this prayer. We see his kingdom being advanced. Where we, right now, we live in the in-between. And what I mean by that is that Jesus came to this earth, sent from heaven. He died. He was resurrected three days later, and he ascended to heaven. And he left us with the promise that one day he would return. And so when Jesus was here on this earth, oftentimes he would say, the kingdom of God is at hand. He is here. This picture of God's rule and reign being present over all the earth. And so we know that he came and that one day he is going to return. And in between this moment, we live awaiting it, knowing that one day his kingdom is going to be perfected. It's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be made whole. And so when we think about his rule and reign, if you think about it like this, when someone announces like a huge piece of news where you see there's a baby on the way or you see that there's an engagement or someone took a job or there's a significant change, news travels pretty quick. It's exciting. It's, um, people are engaged with it. It affects people's life. It's advancing through a community. See, God's rule and reign, his kingdom is advancing across the earth. As the gospel is shared and people trust in him, darkness becomes light. We see hopelessness turn to hope. We see the redemptive work of Jesus transform a group of people and his kingdom is advanced. As good news travels through a community, the gospel of Christ moves. And so what we do now is we pray for his kingdom to come. We pray for his rule and reign to grow. And we fully expectantly wait for the day that he comes and renews all things when he returns and brings a new heaven and earth. We see his kingdom is being advanced alongside of this. We see his plan is being accomplished. His kingdom is being advanced, but his plan is being accomplished. One of the most challenging components of this prayer for you and I is this. He says, your kingdom come, not your will be done, right? He says, or not our will be done. He says, his will be done. Like, we want to read that and think of it in our, like, our context, our possessive sense, that, Lord, this is our life. It's, 
our kingdom. It's our will, our desire. But in Jesus' kingdom, it is his kingdom. It is his will. It is his plan. And we are praying, asking that his plans would be accomplished. We pray for his desires, not our own will. And this is easier said than done. Because how do our prayers usually go? It's usually centered around what we need, what we desire, what we want, what we yearn for in in this life. Yet Christ is saying, I want you to desire what Christ wants. See, a mature Christian, a mature disciple will willingly lay down their own preferences, their own comforts, their own desires of how this world should be and hand them over to the Father and say, God, now what I want is what you want. A mature Christian sees this because it's in this that we flourish the most and we experience abundance in him. This life immersed in the kingdom and immersed in how he has designed it. So a mature Christian will do this. So we see his kingdom is being advanced, his plan is being accomplished, and then in this we see his earth is being altered. His kingdom is being advanced, his plan is being accomplished, and his earth is being altered. And what I mean by this is in this prayer in Matthew, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does he mean by that? See, in this time, in between the, the resurrection of Jesus and the coming again of Jesus, what we know is that as Christ is doing this redemptive work, the earth will change. And in the church and prayerfully in the community around, it will look more and more like a reflection of heaven. That what God is set in heaven will begin to look like, or what earth will begin to look like that. See, when God's redemptive work enters a place, it is renewed and it is restored. People are changed, neighborhoods are changed, communities are changed. See, what is it being restored to? It's being restored by God's original creation, a perfect Eden. So his earth will change as his kingdom is advanced. His plan is being accomplished in places all around the earth. See, if you think of someone that is sick and they take medicine, and this medicine begins to help them recover and heal, and they return back to feeling as they did before they were sick. This is the healing power of the gospel in a group of people, in a community, in a place, where you see both tangibly and spiritually restoration begin to occur, where neighborhoods that were dark are filled with the hope and light of the gospel, where neighbors begin to care for one another. For the college students here today, on the campus, Students displaying the love of Jesus to one another in word and deed. Where the place you dwell, the people you do life with, the community you are in, it begins to look more and more like heaven as it is restored to God's original intent, just as it is in heaven. So what do we do with this? See, we are to pray for his kingdom. We are to pray that God would advance his rule and reign to the ends of the earth. We are to pray for our hearts, our will, to be aligned to the Father. And then we pray that these things would happen here as it is in heaven. That it will grow into a greater reflection of the heavenly host that we will spend eternity with. See, when it comes to all this together, as we come to a close, when we ask what is God's will, 
One of the things I wholeheartedly believe that he desires for us today in this place, in this community, and for all of us here, is that God desires for all to be saved. He has this true, legitimate desire. His kingdom is coming, and he desires for it to grow, and he is inviting folks like you and I to join it. And so in my life, in my sin, where I was dead and hopeless, spiritually dead apart from Christ, by faith in him, by trusting in Jesus, he saved me. The sin that I had done, the rebellion that I had against him, he restored me through the crucifixion and the resurrection of his son. By trusting in the hope of the gospel that regardless of what my past looked like, what my identity was then, Christ looks at me now and says, I am his son, I am made new, and I am perfectly righteous in his eyes. It is not because of what I have done, because it's what Jesus has done. And so he has saved me. He has redeemed me. If you are a member of this church or a believer in the universal church, you know this because Christ took you and saved you. And I believe that today you may be here listening to this and you've never trusted in the hope of the gospel, never tasted the goodness of the salvation of Jesus where he says, if anyone drinks the living water that comes from my well, he will never thirst again. Meaning that this salvation, this eternal life that he freely gives, it will satisfy your soul, not just temporarily, not just for a while, but forever. Nothing that you can find in this world, nothing that your job could give you, or a relationship could give you, anything in this life could give you but it's something that can only be found in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you never trusted in Him, I want to call you, friend, to become a part of the family, the family of God, where He will adopt you in and He will save your soul if you trust in Him. He desires for you to grow as His kingdom, His rule and reign is made known over the earth, and He's inviting you to be a part of it. One very wise pastor shared with me recently, he, he's experiencing revival in his church, and uh, he, he shared with me just some profound wisdom because he believed the revival was happening in his church largely in part due to prayer. That people in their church were coming together, learning and seeing that this is who they are, this is the DNA of what they do is to pray. And as they were experiencing and currently are experiencing this revival, he told me, we cannot send the wind of revival in our church, but we can set the sail. We cannot spark a fire of revival, but we can sack the wind. I want us to be a church that sacks the wind. That in our life, we exalt the Father. As a church, we exalt him. And then we pray that his kingdom will come, his will be done, and Huntsville as it is in heaven. This is what God wants us to do. So let's become not just a church that can pray, but let's be a church that prays. Let's pray together.